0: Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today I was inspired to delve into the world of The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. There is going to be some French pronunciation in this episode, and I will do my absolute best, but apologies in advance for my shortcomings. Um, there is a memoir by Sandek Zubui, or Saint X, as he's known to his, uh, fans. A memoir by his wife, Consuelo, that is on sale currently on Amazon Kindle for $1.99 called The Tale of the Rose that goes into her life with him, and we'll talk about that more later. But we're going to start with an article in The New Yorker by Adam Gopnik, The Strange Triumph of the Little Prince. Of all the books written in French over the past century, Antoine du Saint-Exupéry's Le Petit Prince is surely the best loved in the most tongues. This is very strange because the book's meanings, its purpose and intent and moral, still seem far from transparent, even 75 plus years after its first appearance. Indeed, the startling thing, looking again at the first reviews of the book, is that far from being welcomed as a necessary and beautiful parable, it bewildered and puzzled its readers. Among the early reviewers, only P. L. Travers, who had, with a symmetry that makes the non-believer shiver, written an equivalent myth for England in her Mary Poppins books, really grasped the book's dimensions or its importance. Over time, the suffrage of readers has altered that conclusion, of course. A classic is a classic, but it has altered the conclusion without really changing the point. This year, Marx... An efflorescence of attention, including a full-scale exhibition of Saint-Exupéry's original artwork at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. But we are no closer to penetrating the central riddle. What is The Little Prince about? Everyone knows the basic bones of the story. An aviator, downed in the desert and facing long odds of survival, encounters a strange young person. Neither man, nor really boy, who, it emerges over time, has traveled from his solitary home on a distant asteroid, where he lives alone with a single rose. The rose has made him so miserable that, in torment, he has taken advantage of a flock of birds to convey him to other planets. He is instructed by a wise, if cautious, fox, and by a sinister angel of death, the snake. It took many years and many readings for this reader to begin to understand that the book is a war story, not an allegory of war, rather a fable of it, in which the central emotions of conflict, isolation, fear, and uncertainty are alleviated only by intimate speech and love. But The Petit Prince is a war story in a very literal sense, too everything about its making has to do not just with the onset of war, but with the strange defeat of France, with the experience of Vichy and the occupation. Saint-Exupéry's sense of shame and confusion at the devastation led him to make a fable of abstract ideas set against specific loves. In this enterprise, he sang in unconscious harmony with the other great poets of the war's loss, from J.D. Salinger, whose great post war story for Esme with Love and Squalor shows us moral breakdown eased only by the speech of a lucid child, to his contemporary, Albert Camus, who also from the war took the need to engage in a perpetual battle between each man's happiness and the illness of abstraction, meaning the act of distancing real emotion from normal life. We know the circumstances of the composition of The Little Prince in detail now, courtesy of Stacy Schiff's fine biography Sans Exupéry*. Escaped from Europe to an unhappy, monolingual exile in North America, engaged in petty but heated internecine warfare with the other exile and resisting groups, he had a poor opinion of de Gaulle who he thought who he wrongly thought was setting the French against the French rather than against the Germans. Saint-Exupéry wrote this most French of fables in Manhattan and Long Island. The book's desert setting derives from the aviator Saint-Exupéry's 1935 experience of having been lost for almost a week in the Arabian desert with his memories of loneliness hallucination, impending death, and enveloping beauty in the desert realized on the page. The central love story of the Prince and Rose derives from his stormy love affair with his wife Consuelo, from whom the Rose takes her cough and her flightiness, and her imperiousness and her sudden swoons. While he had been lost in the desert in 35, Schiff tells us she had been publicly mourning his loss on her own asteroid, her table at the Brasserie Lip. The desert and the rose, his life as an intrepid aviator and his life as a baffled lover, were his inspiration. But between those two experiences, skewering them, dividing them with a line, was the war. In the deepest parts of his psyche, he had felt the loss of France not just as a loss of battle, but also as a loss of meaning. The desert of the strange defeat was more bewildering than the desert of Libya had been. Nothing any longer made sense. St. X's own war was honorable. He flew with the GR-233 reconnaissance squadron of the Armée de l'air. And after the bitter defeat, he fled Europe like so many other patriotic Frenchmen, traveling through Portugal and arriving in New York on the last day of 1940. But, as anyone who lived through it knew, what made the loss so traumatic was the sense that the entire underpinning of French civilization, not merely its armies, had come, so to speak, under the scrutiny of the gods and with remarkable speed, collapsed. Searching for the causes of that collapse, the most honest, honorable minds, Marc Bloch and Camus among them, thought that the real fault lay in the French habit of abstraction. The French tradition that moved, and still moves, pragmatic questions about specific instances into a parallel paper universe in which the general theoretical question, the model, is what matters most had failed its makers. Certainly, one way of responding to the disaster was to search out some new set of abstractions of overarching categories to replace those lost. But a more humane response was to engage in a ceaseless battle against all those abstractions that keep us from life as it is. No one put this better than the heroic block himself. The first task of my trade, i.e. of the historian, but more broadly the humanist properly so-called, consists in avoiding big-sounding abstract terms. Those who teach history should be continually concerned with the task of seeking the solid and concrete behind the empty and abstract. In other words, it is on men rather than functions that they should concentrate all their attention. This might seem like a very odd moral to take from the experience of something as devastating as the war, but it wasn't merely intellectual, an amateur's non-combatant epiphany. At a purely tactical, military level, the urge to abstraction had meant the urge to fetishize fixed, systematic solutions at the expense of tactical fluidity and resourcefulness The Maginot line was an abstract idea that had been allowed to replace flexible strategy and common sense. One recalls Picasso's comment to Matisse when the troubled French painter asked him in 1940, but what about our generals? What are they doing? Our generals? They're the masters at the École des des Beaux-Arts. Again, my French. Apologies. Picasso responded, meaning men possessed by the same rote formulae and absence of observation and obsessive traditionalism as the academic artists. From an experience that was so dehumanizing and overwhelming, an experience that turns an entire human being with a complicated life history and destiny first into a cipher and then into a casualty, saint wanted to rescue the person, not the statistic. The statistics could be any of those the men on the planets are obsessed with, the counting fetish that might take in stars if one is an astronomer or profits for businessmen. The richest way to see Le Petit Prince is as an extended parable of the kinds and follies of abstraction, and the special intensity and poignance of the story is that Saint-Exupéry dramatizes the struggle against abstraction not as a philosophical subject, but as a life and death story. The book moves from asteroid to desert, from fable and comedy to enigmatic enum- tragedy, in order to make one recurrent point. You can't love roses. You can only love a rose. For all of the prince's journey is a journey of exile, light like sense's exuperies, away from generic experience towards the eroticism of the particular flower. To be responsible for his rose, the prince learns, is to see it as it really is, in all its fragility and vanity, indeed in all its uttered commonness, without loving it less for being so fragile. The persistent triumph of specific experience can be found in something as idiosyncratic and bizarre as the opening image of a boa constrictor swallowing an elephant, which, the narrator tells us, The grown-ups can only see as a generic object. This is where Saint-Ex and the Surrealists who admired him a tracing of his hand appears in one of the issues of the Surrealist journal Minotaur Touch. René Magritte's paintings, with their very similar obsession with middle-class hats, suggest that every time you see a bourgeois derby there may be a boa constrictor inside. The x-ray of every hat reveals a boa constrictor in every head. That could be the motto of every surrealist exhibition. The men the prince meets on his journey to Earth are all men who have, in blocks since, been reduced to functions. The businessman, the astronomer, even the poor lamplighter, have become their occupations and gone blind to the stars. It is, again, the essential movement we find in Camus, only in The Little Prince it is shown to us as comic fable rather than realistic novel. The world conspires to make us blind to its own workings. Our real work is to see the world again. I also have for you 12 charming facts about The Little Prince from the Mental Floss website and written by Ali Parr. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's beloved tale of a pilot and a young alien prince has been delighting readers since it was first published in 1943. Even if you know The Little Prince, or Le Petit Prince in its original French, by heart, there are probably a few things you may not know about the novella. Number one, Saint-Exupéry knew a thing or two about desert plane crashes. When he depicted the novel's narrator crashing in the Sahara at the opening of the book, Saint-Exupéry was writing what he knew. While today he's largely remembered for The Little Prince, before World War II, Saint-Exupéry was celebrated as an aristocratic aviator and writer who had flown mail routes in Africa and South America, and even worked as a test pilot. During an attempt to break the record for the fastest trip between Paris and Saigon, Saint-Exupéry crashed his plane into the desert 125 miles outside of Cairo. Number two. The Little Mermaid may have inspired Saint-Exupéry to write The Little Prince. Although the true origin of the story is widely debated, one common theory is that Santa exupery was inspired by this Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. In the early 1940s, Santa exupery was stuck in a hospital while he recovered from various inju- injuries that had piled up from his plane crashes, and he was bored out of his mind. His friend Annabella decided to read him a story, The Little Mermaid, that got Santa exupery thinking about writing a fairy tale of his own. Number 3. Saint-Exupéry wrote while while in a self-imposed exile in the United States during World War II. Saint-Ex had been a pilot in the French Air Force until the armistice between France and Germany in 1940, which resulted in the demobilization of the French forces. Having a poor opinion of free French leader Charles de Gaulle, Saint-Exupéry refused to join the Royal Air Force and left for the U.S. instead, where he unsuccessfully tried to get the government to enter the war against Germany. Number 4. Saint-Exupéry's wife Consuelo likely inspired the prince's rose. Antoine and Consuelo had a volatile relationship, living apart for most of their lives, but she always remained his muse. Just as Saint-Exupéry held Consuelo close to his heart, the prince protects his rose, watering her and shielding her from the elements. Although the prince encounters other roses, in Saint-Exupéry's case, other women, on his journey, the fox reminds him that his rose is unique to him because... You become responsible forever for what you have tamed. This theory is further supported by the title of Consuelo's autobiography, (laughs) The Tale of the Rose, which, incidentally, is currently on sale on Amazon Kindle for $1.99. Number five, Saint-Exupéry both wrote and illustrated The Little Prince. Saint-Ex himself painted all of the story's simple watercolor illustrations. He did not consider himself an artist, but he had been a lifelong doodler and was always sketching little people on scraps of paper. Number 6. He had to improvise on some of the illustrations' models. Saint-Exupéry didn't have access to a vast menagerie, so he based the illustrations on what he could find. Pulling inspiration from his own life, he modeled many of the characters from real figures. A friend's poodle became the sheep, while his own pet boxer became the tiger. Number 7. One of the main characters is never actually shown to the reader. Curiously, the pilot, the narrator, and one of the main characters is never depicted in the book. A 2014 exhibit at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York showcased many of Saint-Exupéry's unpublished drawings, including one depicting the narrator sleeping beside his plane. Christine Nelson, curator of literary and historical manuscripts at the Morgan, shared her thoughts on the piece. We can only speculate about why he decided to remove that image, but he was very good at excising what was not essential to his story a fitting analysis considering that the story famously says what is essential is, ev- is invisible to the eyes, a line that itself went through many revisions. Those revisions are, in no particular order, one, but what matters is invisible, two, but what is essential is always invisible, three, what is important is always invisible, four, what is most important remains invisible five what is important cannot be seen six what matters cannot be seen seven something that lovely is not for the eyes eight what is what is important that cannot be seen nine what can be seen does not matter ten what is important is always somewhere else. And 11, what is most important is that which cannot be seen. These phrases can be found in another Mental Floss art- article linked in the show notes. Number 8. Orson Welles wanted to adapt the novella into a film with help from Disney. Welles was apparently so taken with the story that he purchased the film rights the day after reading it. He wanted to work with Walt Disney and even asked Disney to handle the special effects. But the two brilliant artists did not work brilliantly as collaborators. Disney felt that such a film would upstage his own work and reportedly stormed out of a meeting shouting, There is not room on this lot for two geniuses. Wells' original screenplay was showcased during the Morgan exhibit. Number 9. Saint-Exupéry dropped his manuscript off at a friend's before rushing off to, jo- to rejoin the military. One of the most famous books of all time had an unassuming trip to its publisher. Saint-Exupéry tossed a rumpled paper bag containing his draft manuscript and original illustrations onto a friend's entryway table and immediately took off for France again. The 140 page handwritten draft was a mess of struck through prose, illegible handwriting, coffee stains, and even cigarette scorch marks. He left it as a parting gift, saying, I'd like to give you something splendid, but this is all I have. Number 10. Saint Exupéry never saw the book published in his own home country. First published in 1943, The Little Prince was released in French and English, but only in the United States. Due to his controversial political views, Saint-Exupéry's works were not easily available under the Vichy regime, so it wasn't until the liberation of France that the book was made available in the author's homeland. Number 11. Saint-Exupéry mysteriously disappeared after finishing the book. By the time his work was available in France, Saint-Exupéry had already been presumed dead for a year and his death was every bit as mysterious and fascinating as his life. After making his way to Algiers and talking his way into the free French air force, he was once more able to fly even though both his physical, and mental health were questionable. On a 1944 reconnaissance mission, his plane disappeared and he was never seen again. Whether he was shot down by an enemy or perhaps crashed the plane in a suicidal maneuver remains unclear. The author's body was never recovered, and it wasn't until 1998 that a clue to his fate was found in the form of his silver identity bracelet, which was discovered by a fisherman off the coast of Marseille in the Mediterranean. The remains of his plane were found there by a diver in 2000. Number 12. The Little Prince Has Been Translated Into Over 250 Languages One of the most read and most translated books in the world, the story is often used in schools as a teaching tool for learning other languages. The book's crisp style makes it a particularly good choice for translation into small and endangered languages. In 2005, it was translated into an Amerindian language of northern Argentina called Toba, A real distinction, since up to that point, the only other book translated into Toba was the Bible. I have a short piece from the Kirkus Review of the Tale of the Rose, written by Consuelo, uh, St. wife, uh, and also translated by Esther Allen, now, this is a literary memoir from the wife of one of the most beloved figures in children's literature. Consuelo Carrillo met the famous French writer and pilot Antoine Du Saint-Exupéry in Buenos Aires within a year of being widowed from her first husband. The smitten Antoine proposed on the night they met. Overwhelmed by his romantic interest in her, Consuelo fled to France, and Antoine, bearing the gift of a caged puma, quickly followed. This present would prove an apt metaphor for her relationship with the voluble aviator, for Consuelo suffered greatly from the mercurial Antoine's impulsiveness. It it sounds like a very interesting book, Um, and again, it is currently on sale on Amazon for $1.99. If you go to the show notes, there are links to all of these articles, including one that I did not share in the episode, uh, but it details the discovery of Saint-Exupéry's bracelet in 1998, as well as the process of determining the location of his plane crash in the year 2000, and that is the telegraph.co.uk story that was shared. Once again, thank you for listening. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, please email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. If you love the podcast, tell a friend. If you hate it, tell an enemy. Thank you for your time.